Welcome to Subtext and Discourse, the art world podcast sharing insights from those in the field. I'm your host, Michael Dooney. Today, I'm speaking with Berlin-based French artist Marina Stanimirovic. We recorded our interview at the end of January in a new studio just south of Tempelhof. Working with sound and installation, Marina's background is in jewellery making, which began in her home city of Paris and eventually took her to the Royal College of Art in London. Marina shares these life-changing experiences with us, the push and pull between contemporary art and contemporary design, as well as the first solo exhibition at Gallery Tator following a residency at Molly Sabata in France. So without further delay, I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation. You're quite set up as a professional artist mm-hmm. and this is kind of your day-to-day, but I know that you've been in Berlin now for two years? Two years and a half, yeah. Two years and a half. And you were in London before that mm-hmm. and... I know that you're French, yes. but your name is Maria Stanemirovic, <laughs> yes. which isn't the most French-sounding name. No. So maybe we can start from there. Tell us a bit more yeah, about sure. who you are and what you're doing. Okay. Um, yeah, so my name is Marina Stanemirovic. I am French, but from a dad from ex-Yugoslavia, so um, Bosnia, Serbia, and Croatia. And a very, like, I grew up with that culture, um, more than the French culture. And from a mom, that is half French, half Italian. So I do have a, a quarter uh, French blood. <laughs> ah, okay. Do you speak all the languages? No, I can understand um, Bosnian, uh, but I really lost it, yeah. Italian? No. No. <laughs> because I'm French, of course, I can get a bit, but no, no, not at all. I'm very bad with languages. But you, did you grow up then in former Yugoslavia? Or? No, so I grew up in France, in the suburb of Paris, uh, in Argentine in the 95. But I was yeah going there every um, every summer after the war, so mm-hmm. from when I was about seven, yeah. And how did you get into into what you're doing? Because you're trained as a you're trained in jewelry. Yeah, right? as a jewelry maker and a jewelry artist as well. This went after, so um, it started with school, like a normal school. I, I was never good um, at it. And with my parents, with my mom, especially, we were just trying to find a solution because they wanted me to go to lower schools, um, basically like to leave the normal school and go mm-hmm. to um, com- commercial studies or these sort of things that unfortunately they uh, send um, kids to when there is some way more interesting you know, things that we could learn. So anyway, we've been fighting to um, uh, find art school, but of course, art school, it's very privileged in France, mm-hmm. particularly when you come from the suburbs. So I didn't have access to the Parisian ones because it's um, in France, there is a system that it's made in function of where you live. So... <laughs> it's it's oh, really? uh, pretty much, uh, yeah, pretty much set when you come from the suburb and uh, the, the only art school is... Um, and yeah, there was one basically, but then you have to have such a high, uh, you know, quotes like notation that I didn't get in. And so this is like tertiary studies. So after high school? Or this no, is before, before I, like for, I wanted to go to, I started high school, the mm-hmm. normal one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, I sort of failed the first year and then wanted to go to art high school, which exists in France. Ah, okay. Uh, so didn't get in. But I got a private one, so I did one year there, but also um, didn't do well because it was private and it was really privileged. And mm-hmm. 
uh, you were supposed to be yeah, brilliant at everything because they wanted you to have the best, uh, the best quotes to go to schools after. So it was a very, a very hard one in the six arrondissement of Paris. So then I quit. And so my dad is a sewing machine reparer. So I always uh, leave the, the back, uh, how do you say, backside, back, behind the curtains. How do you say in French, you say behind the curtains of... Ah, oh, yeah, behind the scenes. Yeah, behind the scenes, sorry, <laughs> in French as well, you said that actually. Uh, behind the scenes of, um, you know, fashion and mm -hmm. all these things and my dad telling me about all these stories and stuff. So I always had a bit of a feet in, in fashion or, but, but very much as, um, yeah, that I just liked it and understand it, the, the languages. And I don't know how. We then saw this jewelry school and I was like, yeah, cool, I will be able to make um, jewelry. But I was thinking more of like, yeah, fashion jewelry. So like pearls and I was very young. So this was, I was 17 so yeah, I found one, I applied, I got, and first day <laughs> we used the torch and I was like, oh my God, not at all what I wanted. Yeah. And I remember going home <laughs> and crying my life because I was like, mom, this is just not what I wanted because I wanted to really do uh, art, like mm -hmm. design, create, create something. And it was uh, very much a craft. So I stayed for six years. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, um, because it's like two years, two years, two years. Um, the two first years are really just uh, yes, uh, jewelry, like so silversmith, um, goldsmith, silversmith. Then the two other years as well. And then the two last year, it's really for only uh, artists. Oh, so designing pieces? Or? Yeah, but this, I then left Paris to go to Lyon. And I did two years there, which I think we can call it a BA, more or less. So the first part is more like a college maybe or like a practical training yeah. before you go into doing a bachelor yeah. or a classical university study. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, even even to do, I, I was basically, I was always angry at school, the normal one, the jewellery one, the art one, because I, I felt like I never fitted in, in these things. Like the normal one, I just didn't understand why would I learn all these unnecessary, <laughs> you know, uh, things. And then the jewelry one was not art enough, artistic enough. And also I didn't get in Paris to the art part. So this is why I moved to Lyon. Because also, you know, you have to have high grades and it's just discrimination from uh, basically A to Z, in, in, at least in France from my own experience. And Lyon as well? In Lyon, no. Lyon, I got it. But yeah, it is in a way because I was coming from Paris. You yeah. know, suddenly you become the, the good, uh, oh, you okay. know, <laughs> the, like this the, one. The exotic yeah. Parisians. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you become that one. And then, yeah, a friend of mine that was uh, Margot Clavel, who is a jewelry artist, uh, her dream was to go to the Royal College of Art in London. Mm -hmm. I had no idea of uh, what was London, uh, no interest at all. But I was very, of course, I wanted to go to a better art jewelry school. And uh, I was way more into Sweden or Poland. Because she was talking so much about the RCA. And I was like, well, my application is done. I'm just going to send it there. And of course, what happened is that I got the RCA. So yeah, the first round and then the second round. Luckily, she did as well. So yeah. I felt really guilty the first time I received the email. I was like, shit, I hope she's, she's getting it as well because otherwise, yeah, it would have been really tricky. So she got it and we were together. And yeah, then I decided that maybe uh, tactically it would be better than to go to London, also closer to, to my parents and also, um, yeah, more light than, yeah, cold Sweden. Yeah. Yeah, because I guess you can also catch the train between London and Paris. Yeah, two hours and a half. And is that when you moved to London to go to the Royal College of Art? Yeah, so then I moved to London in uh, 2011. And you were there for 
How long? Uh, six years. So two years oh, of master. Oh, until you came to Berlin, you were there. Yeah. How was the shift then? Even I guess culturally as well, it must have been a big change going from Paris to London, but even being in <laughs> not, Lyon. Not speaking English at all. Oh, you didn't speak no. English before. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I was really, I was just really bad at school in general. So uh, literally, yes. Um, I have to say, I don't quite remember. I just remember crying a lot because I was like, what the hell is that? Because the first month you have all these technical, you know, things you have to learn about the machine and stuff so you can be able to use them. And everyone was coming from Holland, Denmark, China, uh, and everyone would have a really good uh, English. So I was like, why, what am I doing here? And then it was just amazing. Very, um, how do you say, very quickly, I worked to the cafe after... Mm -hmm. RCA, which makes you uh, meet everyone, basically. Yeah. And this was just an amazing experience. And um, the RCA back in the, the days, it was uh, back in the time, was uh, built in a way that every uh, department would be together. And of course, some a bit less than other for various reasons. But otherwise, you would have friends from, you know, architecture, from design, from creation, from uh, art, from... Um, and this was just amazing. I think it was the best experience was to have this. And it's not just you and your own, um, you know, department and, and knowledge and how do you say medium. It's really to understand, yeah, the other ones and see what they do. And and of course, you know, you you work super hard and late, and you drink a lot and you pass a lot. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's yeah, it's just like a very uh, intense two years experience mm. it's nice though as well that you have the overlap with the other departments that you weren't yeah. kind of just surrounded by other people doing yeah. the same thing I mean it had changed because the year in, in between my first and second year all fine arts left to another building because now they are based in two different buildings but I have I think it's also changing again so this was a bit sad because yeah. particularly fine art when you know they already are a bit separate Sorry, at the RCA, yeah, I was in Silversmith, School of Material and not School of Art. So yeah, this was a bit sad, but um, I would have really good friends anywhere still back then. So they would just come all the time mm -hmm. to the main building for parties and talk. <laughs> <laughs> but how did that change for you having the, the initial education from, from an artistic, but also from a, I guess, a hands-on practical standpoint? How, how did that compare in London? Like, was it also just the period of the life that you were in or even the... Muscles? Yeah, I mean, it's just like absolutely everything. And, you know, I was 20, 23, probably, something like this, which is a very important time of your life because you're becoming an adult. And it was just open door to everything. It was just so amazing. And for me, it felt really actually normal to be abroad because I've been raised by, you know, two different, mm -hmm. three, four different uh, countries and... So for, for that part, I always felt really conf uh, yeah, comfortable. Yeah, to just be allowed to do whatever you want. In France, I was always fighting. Like nothing was good enough from my own point of view. And I always wanted different. And, and yeah, the RCA yeah, was just this possibility. You know, even the talks, like I remember once coming to uh, with my uh, best friend who was in a very good friend, who is Marie Jacotet. She's a fine artist and she was in a, the printmaking department. We go to a talk because she loves this artist, whatever I go. David Hockney was his name. <laughs> and I had no idea, you know. And, you know, you would just have access to that things where you're just like, what the hell? And, and even back then, I didn't know, you know, what's, how much was this a big deal, actually? I mean, I think it's normal. I think sometimes you're kind of a bit naive. I, of course. I and I wasn't, myself, yeah. you know, still, still in jewelry. It was not 
fine art. It's very different, you know. Mm -hmm. So you don't, yeah, you don't, you have access to that knowledge if you want to, but it's not coming to you. Focusing then on fine art, was it after the studies or during, towards the end that you kind of felt, this is now what I want to do and not, I'm still looking for something else? Well, so at the RCA, I started to experiment with sound. They basically, you know, ask you, not push you, but... Um, encourage? Yeah, encourage you, sorry, to um, explore all the material, or the, the medium, everything. So I started to use sound. I think sound was for me about space. So suddenly I was, so because my work was very much about bodies, I mean, that's a, often the case for jewelry artists, because I suppose when we go to jewelry, it's also for that relationship with the body, with intimacy, and more as like a sort of fashion jewelry, I was very, very much more intimate. Sound was more the idea of an intangible experience. It was more, suddenly I understood that through the intangible, I could feel or I could create something that I could not do with jewelry for technical reasons, for wearable reasons. Um, so I think this already sort of gave me a bit of um, a new perspective. And then after the RCA, what I tried, and I, I was doing like well okay actually for a young designer, was really to come in the design world. Because jewelry, we all, like the, the, the world of uh, contemporary jewelry is very small, but, uh, very big, sorry, but we all know each other. It's mainly based in um, Holland and Germany. But no one knows about us. Yeah. And I was like, I don't understand because everyone has jewelry. Absolutely everyone. You know, your glasses, jewelry, everything, yeah. you know. And I just was so frustrated by um, the fact that, yeah, no one knows about art jewelry. And there is really artists, conceptual artists. And there is, of course, it's a bit like art or design. There is like many ways of being a, a, jeweler, a jeweler. But yeah, I was just really frustrated and also... If you have money, if you have you're an architect, you buy, you know, this sort of, um, I often say this example, you know, you would buy a plastic chair for 10, 20K, you know, because it's the imps of, because, or young designer even, but you don't really care about the material, yeah. When, when it comes to jewelry, if it's not gold or diamond, then it's a problematic, you know. And even myself, I had, and I still have, you know, this. Behind my head, I always have a, um, on my shoulder, I have always this thing that says, no, you cannot do this. You know, it's not, how do you say, durable enough. Uh, because particularly France and England actually has such a heavy heritage on high jewelry mm -hmm. that it's just really hard to um, go beyond. So when I less, uh, left school, I was trying to introduce jewelry to the world of design, but not fashion jewelry, really, mm -hmm. what is art and contemporary jewelry, not just visual cool that I also like, but it's not what I was doing. And so I uh, yeah, did like fairs, Milan, London. I had a, co I set it up a, a collective with my friends. Yeah, it was doing well, it was doing good, but um, I was still in a lake of meaning. I think it was scale, basically. So with the fairs, there were art fairs or design no, fairs? No, design fairs. So a design fair, okay. Yeah, yeah, London uh, Design Festival or Milan, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. I've been to the one in Milan, mm -hmm. the one they have in spring, I think. Yeah, April. So it was a part of that mm -hmm. cohort. And when you say then fine art jewellery or artistic jewellery, how would you define that? Naively thinking about it, it's not going to be everyday jewellery. Mm. Or, or is it to do with more statement pieces, but then that mm. becomes more fashion? Like where do you, like if you had to put it in a box, how would no, you yeah. say this is contemporary art jewellery and not design jewellery? 
Technically, I suppose we could speak of one-off or collection. So this already make a, you know, if you make a collection, mm-hmm. then you're a designer because it's the on how you sell it. Then, you know, it's a bit like this discussion about uh, design and art for artists out of the jewelry world. I think it all depends on how the person works, you know, and, mm-hmm. and you, you sort of see easily if it's an artistic practice or if it's design practice. What I was confronted to, it was this collection thing. I was not at all um, into designing a new collection and this year I'm going to make a new color. And I understand it and I think mm-hmm. it's cool. And uh, most of my friends, that's what they do now. No, I just wanted to do one off and someone that really understand what I wanted to, you know, put in that piece, mm-hmm. gets it. And my, my work was very much statement. I have to say. So it was, yeah, very big, like sort of body pieces. And then I developed a few collection, but then this I, I stopped because I also wanted to, you know, it's a bit like fine art. When you get into that world, it becomes so privileged as well mm-hmm. that I didn't yeah, want I it. Yeah. And I didn't also, so first of all, the people who would be interested in, you know, cannot afford it. And also it's just really, you know, you then put it in, certain type of you know world and it just belonged to that world so I sort of also wanted to do like mini version mini commercial version of what I was doing Mm -hmm. so this I did it and I enjoyed it and I yeah I really liked to do this but then um, yeah living on fairs and calling shops and it was just not really my understanding on what I was doing so that's why you feel you're more you're tending more towards the art yeah. Or the fine art end of things. Yeah, and even if you can evolve, like I was working with interior designers, with architects as well on some, you know, sort of um, home accessories. I always wanted to do this, like handles and things like this. So I, you can see the, the the evolution in that work, but I felt that I was not there. You know, I felt like I actually want to do something else. You know, mm-hmm. I want to do like sound. When I was making sound, for instance, it was so much more exciting than. So I could feel always that thing that was not right or or because jewelry i mean i used uh, a lot of silicone and i was uh, using very industrial material for my jewelry but still i liked the idea of that it's actually wearable that it you actually you know can take uh, like uh, keep it for a while and therefore technically i was uh, restrained yeah pretty easily and this is why, you know, with culture, then you can be like, yeah, I can actually do that thing and it's fine because it's not going to be, you know, on and off and on and off. And, you know, you don't have to manipulate it so much. And that's really the challenge of jewelry because I wanted to make jewelry that is um, conceptual, that is an art piece, but that also that you can actually wear. Yeah, because that is functional. Exactly. Because, yeah, often you cannot wear it and you're like, mm, okay. Or like you have to really be careful and... Yeah, and then it's not very practical, mm. is it? Is there much of an overlap with your sound work and your jewellery work? I studied because I wanted to record body movement mm-hmm. a lot. So I suppose the link, but even until now, is really body. And this is why for jewellery, for instance, you know, if you, make, if you make a necklace that is wearable, it's a necklace. But if you make a necklace piece, and you hang it to a wall, so this is not a wearable piece, but it is a necklace, like an artist that would make a chair. Mm-hmm. It's not a chair for you to sit, but it's a chair, yeah. At, at, the moment, at the moment, there is many artists now that are, you know, going through design. Then, for me, it's a piece that is um, missing a body. It says something, you know. Yeah. It's, it's about bodies. It's about something missing. It's about, 
intimacy. And this was sort of the link of everything. And sound was the same. I was recording a lot uh, my voice because I've been um, singing, but it was more on a, on a more sort of a tool, body tool uh, way. I'm not sure I understand. Well, tool. the voice as not like... A, um, not as a peach, as a note or something, but really as a tool, like to express something or to, yeah, as if, you know, as if we had a guitar, then we have a voice and mm-hmm. it's, uh, you know, an instrument and, uh, yeah, more in that sense than singing songs. Then are you recording voices or yes. just sounds with the voice? Uh, both. Or speaking voices as well. Mm-hmm. And so you would... <laughs> I mean, maybe we can include some later just to have a sample or to listen to them. Or do you yeah. have any of them online, in fact? Yes. There's some, okay. Yeah, I have a sound cloud. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to think how you would approach it then, recording the body. Like, do you script something? Is it very spontaneous? How do you work in that way? Because if I liken it to your jewellery work, you know that you've already got a, a framework to work within. Mm. But like you were saying before, with sound, because it is intangible, and in a way ephemeral, it, it exists in that moment and then it's not there anymore. Yeah. How do you design or plan that or how do you mm. approach that? Well, at the ASIA, I did a lot of recording and then I was very much interested in the rhythm. Rhythms, because we have a body rhythm we, and rhythm could be a structure, but it could be also this um, destructive thing of like, you know, following that rhythm. So I was very much interested in this. So I would record voice um, or touch or the action of a body so like me touching something so I didn't want it to record you know the sound of the plastic I wanted to record the action of my hand tapping the plastic so this in that way it was about more uh, movement and then yeah I would cut them very short and start to have this sort of rhythms so I started like this now the practice I have is a bit more free and basically I'm, I'm, I'm doing a sort of a often like 30 minutes type of improvisation that then I uh, edit a bit. But I have to say, it's uh, first it's like really my, um, it's a bit the medium on the side because I really want to explore more and learn more. So what you would listen to at the moment, what I have online is, um, I wouldn't say this is what I want to do. Uh, I feel still like I'm, I'm still looking for something uh, different. I had a lot of collaboration in London and I was doing as well performances. And this was, yeah, with contact mics and with my materials and, and, and yeah, mixed with voices. So yeah, at the moment I would say I'm into improvisation, but it's not set. And also if it's, um, it's very different, the sound I'm making and the sound I would make for an installation, for instance, because then oh. there is a narrative and then it's really, yeah, it's really a making. Uh, oh, so what are the sounds intended for? Because if you've got them, if the installation sounds are mm-hmm. different, like how are they meant to be experienced or what's the intention? It, it's, it depends on the narrative of the, of the show. Like the show I had, I had a solo show in April at Galerie Tator in mm-hmm. Lyon. In France, this gallery has an, a basement space that is really like old-fashioned basement with, because uh, Lyon is very famous for their wine and for their for their food. So it's a very old, like sort of a wine um, basement that you can touch the ceiling with your, you know, so very low, very intimate in brick. And my uh, solo show was called The Animal Behind Your Neck. So I had all this thematic on hunter and sort of, yeah, victim or... I was really playing on, uh, 
on these two um, opposite. And then I thought for then the basement, I should, for the piece of sound, it, it would be amazing actually, because then you can really have this experience. Because at the beginning, my friends were like, why don't you put it on, you know, the space upstairs? And for some reason, then it's like a background or just the idea that someone turns it on every day and has to listen, you know, to, to your stupid piece of sound every day. I think it was um, missing this experience. And this basement was just perfect to create. So I, I created a sort of like, yeah, landscape sound with the sound I recorded while I was doing the residency at Muli Sabata uh, that I got for, to prepare the solo show. And um, yeah, it's a record of la la landscape and um, <clears throat> voices, churches, and the reading of the text that I wrote for that solo show. Was that your most recent exhibition? Yes. Yeah. First solo show for sculpture, actually. Oh, really? Nice. Oui. <laughs> <laughs> so with the sound and jewelry and installation and bringing everything together, How has it changed much since you relocated to Berlin? So uh, something called uh, Brexit happened. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've heard of it. <laughs> um, and this was definitely a shake. I mean, we were all a bit uh, old because, of course, there is a, a really big uh, French community that I was part of. I mean, I think it's also it's circumstances. I was uh, turning 30 and... Um, Living with your best friend is amazing, but it's not of sort of what you aim until, you know, at the end of your life. And uh, same for the studio. I wanted to share, like to have a studio um, that is bigger than, you know, 20 meters square shared by, shared by four people. And it's literally not possible in London. Yeah, as I was saying, like in seven years, I, have, I had 11 ateliers. I just wanted a better quality mm -hmm. of life and to concentrate. I mean, all of this is in my head, I suppose, but I did the shift and still for the world now, design and art is very different. Yeah. From everyone that I knew, I, I think I just needed to go away from everyone and concentrate on my own thing, not really, you know, have this question on what have you been doing or, or even finding inspiration out of this circle. I was mostly with uh, artists, huh? but yeah, just that I, I wanted to find my own way. And Berlin... I have no idea why Berlin. I wonder if it's my uh, Bosnian background because of this sort of very pragmatic architecture. <laughs> I come from the suburb as well. So it's, a, it's, it's in that sense, it's very similar, uh, but it's very large mm -hmm. and way more quiet. Yeah, I needed to extract myself, I suppose, from that. So yeah, I moved to Berlin. I did a month test and it happened that towards the end of the month test, I met randomly someone more or less in the street that told me, oh, your um, sculpture, then I have an 80 meter square atelier <laughs> that I need to rent out. Okay, so I called a very good friend of mine and uh, who wanted also to, to move to Berlin. And I said, Ralph, we have an 80 meter square. Do yeah. you do it with me or not? He said, yes. And then we moved. Oh, cool. Okay, so that was... I mean, I think most people, when they come to Berlin, like, there's a, a quite a large element of serendipity. Yeah, and this was in Charlottenburg, and of course, I had to leave six months after, <laughs> and that's the same story again, yeah. But yeah, this is how I uh, yeah, moved to Berlin. Cool. What are your plans then for, for this year, or just in general moving forward now? Because, I mean, the space that you're in now is amazing. Mm -hmm. It's kind of ideal for the kind of work that you're doing. Mm -hmm. Do you have already exhibition plans or is there new work that you're hoping to realize this year or a direction that you're going in? Um, well, first of all, I mean, I was always craving for a bigger atelier. I was always saying to 
my friends and partner, if I had that, da, da, da. and I never knew if it's, you know, if you say this because it's a sort of procrastination in a way that you're a bit lost and you think that with that thing, it will change everything, yeah. but it changed everything. So, oh, it did, yeah. Yeah, of course. I am, so I'm now part of BBK Atelier, so it's a um, subsidized uh, atelier. Uh, in Berlin, so basically I pay very cheap rent and for about six to eight years. So that's the first time I have security. I never been more than one year in an atelier, or one year and a half maybe. And it changes because, yeah, you know that you can settle, you can, uh, you know, buy a desk that you will keep for a few years, you, you know, that you can, you know, I don't know, just explore. I'm at home here, you know. Yeah. My flat is not my home. My home, it's really here. And so now I'm developing work and... It changes a lot because I had so little space before that I was very much uh, focused on sort of how we, how, how we would call old style culture, which is one object culture. And now, which makes sense with the sound that I was making, I'm very much uh, exploring uh, installation and mm -hmm. it's way more exciting And because my work is very minimal and is very technical and, and could look very, um, how do you say, a sort of strict or a bit cold. Mm -hmm. The format of an installation really helps me to lose it, you know, to put like a picture in the corner, to put that piece on the floor. Um, everything that maybe alone would not make so much sense, but then suddenly you can just play. And this is, yeah, basically I play, yeah. you know, when before I had to, you know, think, draw, send to the, it was way more... Um, way more technical yeah and I guess you would say you were quite restricted before yeah I think definitely having the space and knowing that for the next six to eight years I don't have to look for a new yeah. studio that is a huge weight off your mind of course and also to invite people um and and to be part of Bibica also shows you that you know artists we are renting and in London was often the case excuse me for the word but really like shitty place and cold and you know, you really feel, I, I often felt like the rat of the society, oh, you know? No, but really, you know, that person that works in that thing. And, and, and of course, you have no, nothing from, no help from the society. And mm -hmm. I mean, this is a big um, subject. But anyway, when suddenly you're part of this system, it's so nice because you're like, yes, you know, someone really cares, someone. And we are, so here I'm part of... Um, 10 new ateliers, so everything is brand new. Wow. They redone it super well, and it just feels like, yes, mm -hmm. you know, thank you. It's a game changer, yeah. We spoke a lot about you and your process. Yeah. Is there a specific aesthetic then maybe that you're going for or that you're wanting to, um, that you're wanting to achieve? There is just something that I recently uh, noticed because people were always uh, often tell me it's beautiful or, or it's very designed. And I was a bit offended by that before, of course, because you're like, oh, yeah, but that's not really what I meant. Or of course, it's beautiful, but it's not really the, the point. But I just noticed now that um, all this, because I have a bit of a, I'm a bit of a geek when it comes to, I, I call it uh, system design or uh, all the design that you would see in the streets, that you would see uh, in the shops, like all the sort of uh, basic design. Mm -hmm. And I have a bit of an obsession for that and for building design and, and um, service design, all these things. And I think that, yeah, that's where I take my inspiration, but also it's a very pragmatic way as well to imagining shape because that's why we are surrounded by. And again, I come from the suburbs, so it's from a very young age. That's sort of my understanding of 
the everyday. So I think I, I would just say that aesthetically, yeah, more in a pragmatic way than in an aesthetic way. Yeah. Or if I want to say something, I will add uh, visuals of, uh, I don't know, like a crane or things like this, but not as a crane. Then I will just, you know. But this is really something I only noticed now because mm -hmm. I had all this inspiration and I was working like this. And then slowly now I understand that, yeah, I have definitely a design language, but it's on a more, um, in French, we say détourné, which means... Uh, uh, not on a straight. Uh, Do so. Yeah, I don't yeah. know if you would say this in English. <laughs> well, I realised I haven't asked you actually. You often have photography in your work. Yes. Yeah, like photography is quite <laughs> an element in your work, and for me to not ask that it seems a bit ironic somehow. <laughs> but you, yeah, I guess working with metal and glass and with other materials from mm. jewellery obviously makes sense. With sound, there's different ways of capturing sound. When you said about the installations and you include pictures. Yeah and other things within the work. And I've seen when you present your work, you'll have a photograph on the piece mm. or you'll have other images that you've taken yourself mm. and you incorporate that within, within your presentation. How does, yeah, how does photography play a role? Photography for me is uh, it's more a tool to, to lose, to look, because so as I was saying earlier, so my work is mainly made of uh, steel, stainless steel, I'm still very much attached to metal because that's where I come from in terms of um, uh, craft. So when it comes for sculpture in metal, you have to be so sharp on the drawings. On mm -hmm. uh, I'm doing technical drawings on online uh, CAD and all of that. So this is so boring in a way and not at all instinctive. Like I want my work to feel, mm -hmm. not to be, but to feel. Um, and this is why with voice, I can lose this because I can, it's less, uh, you know, strict. With uh, drawing, painting, I'm using spray paint as well and photograph. So for me, photograph is not, I don't see it as, I'm not at all a photographer. I have mm -hmm. no idea on how the way, you know, the way my camera works, but it's really capturing an instant the way, the same way that I would record, you know, something that Sound. I found interesting. Yeah. And therefore, this sort of element, I think, help me to to break this uh, cold feeling that I have with metal so they are really intimate and they have also most of the time a sort of a, a behind meaning mm -hmm. that I don't especially want to say but I, I think I think we understand more or less what I mean um, and it's all analog I only do analog picture yeah because it's about an instant yeah it's exactly like sound it's about one instant and you cannot really change you know, when, when painting or with metal, you can always like uh, shift around to this mm -hmm. or that. And I like that it's like this, oh, it, it worked or oh, it didn't work. And if it didn't work, I have to use another one. And yeah. Yeah. But I never take the picture uh, thinking of, well, not yet. Maybe at some point I will become a bit more professional and I will do like real series, which mm -hmm. I already start to think of actually. But until now, it's, it's really a picture that I have, that I do, I develop. And then I have them, and when I do an installation, I'm like, oh, yeah, I can use that one. Yeah. So it's really like, yeah, color of, or sound. I think I can understand now better how you were describing this separation of the two. Mm -hmm. Jewelry and metal products can seem cold because a lot of them now we make with machines. Mm -hmm. So they are so precise. You know, you're designing them to the last millimeter. Yeah, they kind of lose the human element. Of course. And maybe even if, because it's analog, mm -hmm. kind of that's sort of somehow being reintroduced into it or you're bringing that human element back or that unpredictability 
mm-hmm. or that uncertainty. It's really to sort of, I'll often say, to sort of damage it, you know, to sort of, mm-hmm. yeah, add this hand, exactly. And and this is why spray paint is also sort of something, because it's still this sort of industrial material, of mm-hmm. course, and it's sort of um, aggression, because, you know, spray paint for all the, the history of spray paint, but then it's still your hand, and therefore there is a sort of gesture. And I think, uh, yeah, picture is also a gesture, yeah, of, um, of a thought. I have one other question. Do your tattoos that you've got on your arm, like mm-hmm. a big block of black, <laughs> can you tell me anything about that? <laughs> yeah, I think in a way it's my first, it sounds a bit ridiculous, but for me, I think it's my first art piece in a yeah. way. <laughs> this was back when I was in London, so about nine, nine years ago. And um, again, my relationship with bodies it's a mark, basically. So it's an, it's it's a spa- it's a definitely a space. So it was supposed to be a line mm-hmm. until the day I went to the to the tattoo shop, and uh, the line was too aesthetic. There was this thing where there was too feminine, too aesthetic. I just wanted a hardcore sort of um, mark on 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 my body. Then the arm, um, because the arm are the only um, you say member in German, no, in uh, English. I don't mm-hmm. think you say member. An arm, um, a limb. Yeah, exactly. Because I also always say member. I think you can as well, but it's not really right. So a limb, the only limb of your body that are free mm-hmm. of the rest of your body, and that technically can go uh, to the sky. So this sort of um, sort of freedom type of um, metaphor, but also that's the way you protect yourself. So yeah, I just wanted a mark, a space where yeah, that would have different meaning through my life, I suppose. But it's sort of a yeah, a war, <laughs> a war mark. And of course, to you know, uh, reappropriate yourself, your body, and all this type of signification. Yeah, and a small knee tattoo. <laughs> only tattoo. That's the only one I have. Yeah. Okay. No, because it's quite. Um Pretty Romance. heavy. <laughs> yeah, nice, yeah. No, but the, the the funny story is that so as I was saying, I was supposed to to have a line, you know, like ah, okay, two millimeter, yeah, yeah. yeah. And on the day, I was actually the line twist, and it's this sort of like very decorative thing that I really don't want to. So I said to the guy, um, actually, can you make it slightly thicker? And uh, he drew or he printed on a piece of paper the empty, uh, so how do you say the... Ah, uh, oh, the outline. Yeah, the outline. The problem is that I also have a bit of a freezing problem, which has probably happened to a lot of people. When you don't really know, you just say, yeah, yeah, okay. You know, instead <laughs> of being like, no, actually, that's not what I want. and not like this. I'm more like, yeah, yeah okay, let's do it. <laughs> So this is what I said. I said, yeah, okay, cool, let's do it. Because it was probably, my brain was yeah, probably yeah. turned off anyway. So we did it. And then when he started to feel it, mm. I was like, oh, damn. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a line anymore. But I liked as, as well this sort of metaphor. And when it's empty, it looks um, yeah, smaller than full. So um, that's the story. <laughs> oh, good. I think that's a nice point to finish on. So. <laughs> Well, I'm glad we got to do this, Marina. We've been planning yeah. to it for a while. Thank so. you very much. Thank you for coming. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed listening to Marina's story. It's been interesting to hear how London still has such a profound life-changing impact on those who have lived there. In the description below, you can find links to Marina's website, social media, and a few of the items that we spoke about. With each episode of the podcast, I feel we're making improvements in the audio quality. So thanks again to Sebastian Delaluz for engineering the sound. Thanks also to the listeners who've recently been in touch. It's really nice to hear how you're enjoying the podcast. 
And if you've been thinking about writing, please feel free to leave a comment or send us any feedback to this or any of the previous episodes. Until next time, thanks again for listening. My name's Michael Dooney, and you've been listening to Subtext and Discourse.